0: Hi, I'm Sean Katz, and I am the director and producer of Underground Inc., The Rise and Fall of x Rock. Okay, let's
1: start at the beginning of this picture.
0: There's so many bands at that time that were just so vital. You know, it seemed like it had this like uncensored energy.
1: I couldn't believe it. I'd never heard music like that. It was completely foreign to me and super exciting. It really is all because of Nirvana. Their record came out just before us and is just selling millions and millions and bands don't, didn't do that unless you're Madonna.
0: The record labels in Los Angeles were just
1: dropping money on bands
0: left and right. Okay form a line
1: over there with your checkbooks. But so many sad stories of, of records that were made and, and then shelved and they never got put out. And, you know. I mean multiple people out there, players and musicians and writers and singers and who should be giant. I do know that there are a lot of great bands from the 90s that never got hurt.
0: Creativity meets commerce and they go smash,
1: smash, smash, smash
0: and like what's going to happen?
1: Don't put out a scary record right now. Put out another happy pretty record.
0: That was the moment when we had this realisation of of what was going on. That we didn't have any control. We shot a video and it never made it anywhere. It never never got shown anywhere. It happened that fast for us. The decline. Now, that's the
1: 90s right there. That is a trailer from the soon to be released documentary, Underground Inc. The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock. And this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a London based production company, making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host Matthew Sherwood and today we're in for a real treat as we discuss the 1980s and 90s alternative rock scene. Uh, joining us is Sean Katz, director and producer of Underground Inc. The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock. Uh, Sean, uh, welcome to Factual America.
0: Hi Matthew, happy
1: to be here. Yeah, it's uh, what is it? Eight in the morning there, isn't it? And, or it where is, are you in Sydney?
0: Sunday morning as well. So yeah, so,
1: so what's Sunday like?
0: Sunday is just raining. It's just dark and gloomy outside. So if I wasn't talking to you, I'd probably be sleeping in or watching a movie right
1: now. <laughs> See, we've, we've done you a favor, haven't we? Um, <laughs> so, uh, as we've already said, uh, Underground Inc., The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock, uh, officially uh, came out in 2019. Um, Got some uh, great quote here from David Griffiths at uh, Lilithia Reviews. If Katz's aim was to show the world that for every Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins, there was an equally as good band who were overlooked, but kept slaving away, then it certainly achieves that. Uh, It's releasing on March 23rd. It's available in the US and Canada on DVD and all major cable and VOD platforms, including, but not limited to iTunes, Amazon, Fandango Now, Voodoo and Google Play. I've also been advised to say check local cable listings for availability. Uh, so, thanks so much, John, for coming onto the podcast. Congratulations on this finally uh, having a wider release. And uh, thanks for making this film. I got to relive some of my misspent youth, although I'm now thinking it wasn't so misspent having seen your film. Um, <laughs> so, Sean, maybe uh, give us a little background. What is, uh, I mean, It seems pretty obvious given the title, but what is Underground Inc all about?
0: Well, for me, it was trying to communicate to maybe hopefully a larger amount of people that when you think about 90s music, it's not just smashing pumpkins, it's not just Rage Against the Machine, or Green Day or whoever, who all made great albums, obviously. But there was a whole sea of other bands basically talking like two or three generations worth of bands who were completely fobbed off by these major corporations who if they didn't sell as many albums as Green Day or as many as I don't know Tool or, or whatever big band was happening at the time they were their career was basically over so and in many cases so many of these smaller bands were more accomplished than the more well-known bands. So, I was working in a record store and I had access to everything that was coming out and I saw these bands who had only come out with one album and I, I was—I wanted to know more. I was like, I need my fix. Where is the second album? And that's how I got into exploring this whole story.
1: Okay. And when you hear, I mean, um, you know, maybe I hate to do this. Actually, there's this part of me that just wants to throw all the notes out the window, and just because it would be more in spirit with what I think we're going to be talking about today in terms of alternative rock of, of, the, of that era. But when you, you know, when people hear alternative, uh, they hear different things. Uh, and for you, how would you define alternative music?
0: I must say, uh, I know that that was used as a catch all phrase for anything that was sort of post-punk related or, yeah, or, yeah. or underground punk inspired or something but I feel like the alternative label really got associated with what was acceptable to be played on radio at a certain point because mm. there was a time where suddenly by let's say 1997 where you turned on the radio and that kind of music didn't sound anything like it did just uh, three years ago it didn't yeah. sound like it at all so I would probably Prefer to maybe let's talk about underground punk or, or whatever other label you want to use, which is in more of the spirit of the kind of music mm. I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, I or mean, I th- well, I think it's funny because I, you know, I was I was explaining, uh, trying to explain to my teenage children why I was so into this film, uh, and, you know, and uh, also explaining different music and. I, you know, you get thinking, people talk about punk, post-punk, college, hardcore, whatever you want to call it, but don't you think it's just these these sort of subgenres, or Are these just music journalists trying to, uh, I don't know, classify things, pigeonhole music that in a lot of ways defied being uh, pigeonholed?
0: Um, I definitely think all of the labels that came up uh, around that time were definitely definite result of journalists. I mean, I don't think any of those Seattle bands defined themselves as grunge. That was most definitely yeah. uh, a term invented by the media, or maybe by the industry. And um, it, it was the same with alternative. I mean, I don't need to repeat the whole alternative to what line, everyone's heard that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely do agree. Yeah.
1: And then I think um, you've got, uh, I mean, one thing that I think it captures well, and you've. Um, I think there's a musician in the film, um, uh, Craig uh, Silverman, who's like uh, was talking about that scene and, and coming up. You know, this is, you know, pre Nirvana. Um, he says, kids from different scenes were coming together and you couldn't call them anything. I mean, this was, uh, and, and that certainly my own personal experience is going to music clubs, and you'd see people of all sorts coming to these concerts.
0: Uh Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I'm a little bit younger than some of the people who were initially, who came of age during this music, but so a lot of the things that I'm saying are, are secondhand in a way, but I mean, yeah, you would go to a Jane's Addiction concert, and you'd see like, um, like weird, whatever the version of hipster was at the time, you'd see yeah. <laughs> metal kids, you'd see punk kids, you'd see Um, like hippies, you'd you'd see uh, just a whole bunch of weird bunches of audiences, which as before was like, you know, if you dress differently, then get out, you're not invited. So that was a a coming together of different um sub um groups of, you know, I forget the word, but you know what I'm talking
1: about. I mean, yeah, you've got a great, uh, you've got. I mean, it's amazing. You got Steve Albini on there. I mean, and. I think he's got a great scene there too, where he describes what that scene was like, you know, uh, just all these different groups of people who are just, as I think, as he put it, not straight, <laughs> would not uh, <laughs> you know, not fit in with whatever was mainstream, uh, all was, together.
0: When, when I was filming that thing, you think, when he said the line about the dogs, yeah, I was trying so hard to not to burst out laughing. Uh, <laughs> recorded that I was I was just like behind the camera going don't you laugh don't you dare laugh right
1: yeah
0: <laughs> but it was, it was yeah it was it was hilarious
1: and yet so how did nirvana change things cuz it's obviously they didn't happen in a vacuum this there's this thr- well underground but thriving scene but how's, how does nirvana change everything
0: Well, um, Nirvana was basically the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, when you talk about Nirvana becoming huge and Lollapalooza becoming huge and all that sort of, uh, you know, the year that punk broke and everything like that, that was the result of 10 years of, you know, underground bands uh, breaking their backs and blazing trails and... um, but for better or worse, setting up a demographic that would be come huge like 10 years later. But I mean, there were, um, obviously when the first punk thing happened, that was driven more underground. And the I think around, maybe some people would say 83, some people would say a little bit later, all these hardcore punk bands started, you know, playing mm. with different genres and incorporating elements of, black sabbath or 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 gang of four or or whatever bands they liked into a more musical outlet if you will and um you know you had all these weird bands coming up like you had like bands like huskadoo exactly junior and and all these bands that just didn't sound like anything that had happened before and that eventually evolved into bands like you know the butthole surfers and chili peppers and and bands that would become household names later on so that's Uh, how the vacuum didn't happen with Nirvana,
1: and then you know you you interview all these all these musicians f- from all these bands. Um, I mean, did they th- was it was it like that? Was it like s- turning on a switch that they sensed things changed soon as soon as Nirvana hit big?
0: It really depends on who you speak to. I mean, there were so many yeah. people who I interviewed. For some people, they were a bit more blase. They were like, "Oh yeah, the big." brief nirvana boom or (laughs) who cares right Mm -hmm. and then there were some people who said oh yeah man i remember when they opened for the chili peppers and and they played that song teen spirit and you're like whoa something's changing man which i I don't know if that's true or not but um i think um there was a sense that um there was a generational shift and i think that was definitely present and i think a big part of the story that i cover in underground ink is that because of a generational shift that happened it, it sort of left the music industry a bit sort of not knowing what to do or not knowing what mm-hmm. the kids were into and uh then suddenly uh, a band like let's 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 refer to soundgarden instead or yeah or
1: yeah. yeah certainly instead.
0: um and when you know Nirvana or uh, sorry, Soundgarden or Ellison Chains or whoever suddenly became huge, uh, they just they just went with it. They just okay sign everybody. And um, uh, so I forgot your original question, but basically it, it was the result of the record company uh, basically responding to a very clear generational shift that had happened. Okay.
1: Hold that thought because I think what we'll do is we'll go to an early break and then we'll come back and uh, talk some more about alternative rock music with, with Sean Katz. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with director, producer, writer, editor, cinematographer Sean Katz. Is there anything you didn't do on that film, Sean? (laughs) Um, I didn't do any catering. (laughs) I think that may be the only credit you didn't get. Uh, So Underground Inc, The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock, releasing on March 23rd. Uh, I will say it again, and it won't be the last time you hear it. Available in the US and Canada on DVD and all major cable and VOD platforms, including iTunes, Amazon, Fandango Now, Voodoo and Google Play, or check your local cable listings for availability. That should make uh, Andrew McKinnon, the publicist happy. And I guess we should get out, give a shout out to Vision Films for uh, getting this film uh, released. Um, so Sean, we were talking about, uh, I agree with you, let's not just always use the N word. Uh, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, all these bands that really hit it huge then. Um, alternative music essentially goes mainstream, it, in essence, and becomes commercially viable. But what at what cost? And I think your film captures this very well.
0: There are probably some bands that the film explores who just were not meant to have a bigger audience i mean yes these um there were there was a lot of weird politics about selling out and stuff back then, which no one really cares about now but that was big back then um but you know look there were a lot of bands who just weren't weren't inherently destined to appeal to the mainstream not because they were bad but because a band like drive like jehu yeah. uh or a band like sleep who made the best one song album ever uh are just not they weren't gonna you know be on the radio mm-hmm. with you know the backstreet boys or, or something like that right, uh, right. Uh, so it it was a little bit um it was a little bit of a a weird thing this weird contradiction that was happening and i think that you know through the the i guess the main the final point here is that uh, the scene kind of became polluted because it went from these underground bands doing something, I guess, pure to a degree where they were yeah. just doing it for the love of it. To doing it, it went from that to going, okay, um, I've got to make sure that the bar is full of A and R people tonight, and I've got to try to get a. Bigger advance than that band got last night, and we got to make sure that we have sponsors and that kind of thing. So I think that that somehow crept into the music at a mm-hmm. some point. At some point, which is probably when you start to get all those like cookie cutter bands, like yeah. you know, the Nickelbacks and and stuff like that, which yeah, eventually happened at a certain point as well. So I think that's how it sort of got polluted.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't blame them. I mean, hear these kids and they're i guess mostly in their 20s um uh, and you a lot of money being thrown in front of them and they didn't know what the the uh, music business was like and i think your film also documents that quite well in terms of in, in a way i hadn't actually quite realized it. we all know each music scene we've even had docs about other music scenes of other eras but uh and you know in the play between studios and labels and the and the artists but um you know the as i think one of them says you you're not getting paid by the studio. You're actually paying the studio, aren't you, for these big budgets and these these crews and and tours that you're doing.
0: Owing all this money. Uh, well, I, I think some bands in the film did owe the labels money, and some didn't. But the thing is, you said something before about how they aren't to know. I've got a slightly different take on that. And I think Dave Windhoff touched on this quite eloquently. Uh, He was saying that in that thing with, uh, because this wasn't the first time that um, a record company or all the record companies Mm -hmm. had come in and tried to co-opt the scene and and bands explode, there's too many bands and the thing ends. Um, He was saying that, you know, these were... These were people who grew up listening to college radio and reading magazines and, and that this wasn't a bunch of fresh faced kids from the 60s going, I like the Rolling Stones, I want to do that too. Right. These were people who did know that these things were happening. But to be quite honest, I think with a lot of these bands, the big problem was that they know that that kind of thing is going to happen, but they don't think it's going to happen to them, because they think that they, that they have a plan, that they're going to change the world somehow, and maybe they might just be that one that makes that difference. So I think that was a big part of it too.
1: That's interesting. That is an interesting take. Um, and Dave Dave Windorf's an excellent interview. Uh, he's got he's yeah. a, a lot of great scenes. Um, <laughs> Also about how to sell records, uh, but I think
0: <laughs> with a cigar in the
1: mouth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he's talking about, how oh, you got to do. Uh, what does he say? They want to. Tit-
0: I love what you kids are doing. Why yeah. don't you come over here? You do it for us, and it'll be exactly the same as what you do, except more people will enjoy it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and I think, yeah. So I think that is a. I think that is a fair point. They weren't so naive, and I, as you say, it's a. Well, or someone else said it's a warts and all doc. So. Obviously, uh, you know some of these contracts for fueling, drinking, and drug habits, and all kinds of stuff that was just rampant at at that time.
0: I was very happy that i that I was able to also put the focus on what the bands did wrong as well, without you know them whining or anything like that. Obviously, you don't want that because that's not very um, flattering when when someone on camera does that. Which I don't think anyone. Did. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think that they were very honest in how they um, looked at themselves, especially, like, for example, Peter Mangare when he gives this very <laughs> talk yeah. about words and all. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. It, 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 traveling around in the van and uh, things that were going on on, on tour and. The band falling out. Yes, I yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's uh, no that's spoiler that. alerts here. We're not going to go any further than that.
0: That may not be appropriate for the podcast.
1: Yeah, it might not be. I, you can cuss, but I think we got to have to be careful how far we go with that one. Just just <laughs> advise everyone to watch that scene, uh, and you'll know what we're talking about. But uh, uh, yeah, and I mean, I think that's something too that you catch very well, which is uh, this this energy. You know, this it was so much about touring, and you know. Um, and that's that's certainly as someone who was going to these clubs in the 90s from like late 80s on into the late 90s i mean that's what uh i mean that was you know 200 person venues these sort of things and that's uh you know and you'd get some big names in these little small venues and these this um it was about you know the the energy and the the that you capture is amazing in in this um and, uh, you know, this sort of going on the road and being on the road. And it's not obviously a glamorous, certainly as these bands are, are starting out.
0: Um, yeah, no, thank you. Um, I, I did want to, to somehow capture some sort of energy. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd seen a lot of music documentaries where I sort of felt like shaking the person around who was speaking. And I was like, yeah. come on. Like, and I think at the time I started making this the talking Head documentaries were a lot more popular back mm. then. They were they were a lot more common, and I know that mine is also essentially a talking head um, documentary. But I think the way we, you know, captured that energy, and I say we, as in me and JB Sepienza, who was a big part of forming the aesthetic of that film by the time it was complete, uh, you know, it was obviously a mix of the personalities on screen who are, I mean, as you can. Uh, recall there were some very interesting personalities from <laughs> Walter Kibbe to Dave Windhoff yes, to yeah. many, many other names. Um, but it was also, you know, JB's animation, you know, uh, being splashed into there. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I I was very happy when I think it was one of the guys from Cup Shoot Cop who said, "Like you really captured the energy, like the reckless energy of that time." So that that was cool to hear. I was very pleased.
1: Well, let's get to the making of this film. I think because uh, um, that kind of gets to this. I mean, uh, how did how did this film come about? I mean, um, as you say, you're a little younger. Uh, you didn't quite come of age as when some of this was happening, but you were. I mean, how did? you went from a love this obviously of a love for this this era and this music how did that get you to then go take that next step which or not just next step next several steps to making a documentary
0: with great passion and naivety so um, basically i did contact all of these people who were in the film i actually went and i contacted everyone who i thought i would want to speak to Some people said yes, some people said no. I'd say about two-thirds of the people I contacted said no, and a third of the people said yes. So I tracked down a lot of people through like managers and their Mm -hmm. websites and publicists and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was just very lucky. The the first people I approached about um, finances uh, were willing to give me whatever money I needed right out the gate to head out just in time to speak to all these people so that sort of happened straight away and then the whole editing and and, and clearing of songs and all that stuff just took what what felt like a lifetime but I I can't say I can complain all that much either because I think the film needed that time to gestate and because for example the animation that JB did that happened like right right near the end so everything happens in its time but yeah, that was basically uh, the rundown of how it all came together.
1: I mean, as you mentioned, there's and you only, you know, out of the people you reached out to, you got a third, but there's still so many, and yeah. you could have easily focused on one or two bands, but but you didn't. I mean, I think you've, I mean, uh, there are bands I hadn't, I didn't quite remember, it, to be honest, um, and. Uh, you know how did you manage to get them to say yes get them on camera and uh, and get around to filming i mean there's i mean how much how many interviews are there in this thing
0: no okay so i was actually flying from australia to the us i'm based in australia normally yeah. and um i mean look i would just say that the people who agreed they agreed because they agreed i, I mm-hmm. can't say why But I mean, I can talk about why they were as maybe forthcoming as they were, because there were a lot of people in the doc who maybe said things that you might not hear in your typical doc, like talking Mm -hmm. about how they were, you know, know, some mistakes that they made and, and things like that. And I think basically... I did send them a very polished presentation of what I wanted to do. I, I hadn't, this wasn't the first thing I had made. I had made like short films and music videos and I had won awards mm-hmm. and things like that. And I did put together a website and I had interviewed mm-hmm. Peter Mangaday from Helmet already. So he was included yeah. in the little package that I sent them and everything like that. So there was uh, a whole selling thing that i did to them to get them on board uh but when i spoke to them i think the fact that it was just me and my camera and us two in a room it maybe brought some of the the guard down that they might have had if there were an entire crew in the room with me and i think i got some really um good stuff out of there I, i there was there was a struggle to uh you know There was so much other stuff I wanted to fit in the film that I couldn't because there was so much good stuff that came out of the filming.
1: So was that done intentionally, or was that just budget? You only had budget for you and a camera to go around, or did you think? Oh, pretty much. much. Uh, Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, Yeah. Budget, but it was. uh, (laughs) I think the way I made this film was the perfect way that this kind of film needed to be made. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, no. I think it does make sense. I mean. Fortunate to get that money up front, but then I'm I'm sure I know enough about the film business to know it's not. I'm sure there wasn't a steady stream of money to help finance this thing. So, uh, um, but we were talking earlier about the energy you capture, and um, I think uh, where did you find all that archive? Because this is pre-smartphones, and you know, you look at concerts now, and everyone's got their phone up, and they're all filming, and you know. You,
0: there were people documenting that stuff back then. If, if, they, weren't, if they weren't in bands or writing zines, there were, there were people going around filming their favorite bands and storing it on VHS and trading tapes. And yeah. it was just another part of this whole underground network that was happening. So it was a mix of finding those people and maybe just getting footage being sent to me from the bands who were in the film and everything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you got a great concert footage of Fugazi. I thought that was uh, amazing. Um, and then, I mean, but that's between that, you've got all these great quotes in the. Uh, I mean, you don't spend. I, I'm not talking up the picture well enough because p- people are going to think, oh, lots of Talking Heads interviews, reading quotes and things. But that's that doesn't that that doesn't really give a flavor of the energy that's in this film. But uh, y- you know, you've got all these. I mean, a lot of these bands and bands that I, you know, I said I. Wasn't that familiar with? they you know, they got Rolling Stone quotes, and they've got you know big name people. These they were, they were definitely on people's radar screen. But as you said, you know, for various reasons, didn't make it big, or maybe weren't really meant to make it big.
0: These bands who um, who I I talk about in the movie had such a big impact on the musicians who came after them, like. Your average um, music listener might not know who Sunny Day Real Estate is, but probably every, like, fifth person that ever heard Sunny Day Real Estate back then started their own band. Like, I mean, yeah. all these bands like Sunny Day and um, Brad and, and Course of Empire, I mean, these bands made big, big impacts in the underground world jesus lizard i mean these were not lightweights these are not like some guy who decided to like perform in a in a club one night and and who the who the hell is this these were i mean uh it's almost like as far as underground musicians go this film is almost like a like a who's who a list of those people i mean you got pepper keenan from corrosion of conformity you've got walter strifles from quicksand i mean you got Jay Robbins from Jawbox. How could I ask for any more? I mean, I might as well have Tom Hanks and Brad Pitt in my in my indie film or something. Yeah, as far yeah. like. so yeah. th- th- this is why you see all these quotes from uh, these big publications, uh, uh, you know, pinned onto some of these clips, because yeah. these were very important bands to some people, even if they didn't sell um, a zillion albums.
1: Yeah. And... I, we we mentioned Dave Windorf already, uh, of monster magnet. But uh, I think hits him very early on, and it's uh, I, I've seen it mentioned elsewhere that this is the he calls it the last physical rock scene. And what do you think he meant by that? What does it mean to you that this is sort of the last physical rock scene?
0: Well, things changed quite a lot after when the internet came around. I mean. Uh... I mean, by 95, I mean, I don't know if broadband was around quite then, but people uh, yeah. were definitely using dial-up and everything. And then, I mean, with the internet now, I mean, if you if you share these interviews with, um, I don't know, what's his name? Like Ariel Pink or whatever his name is,
1: yeah.
0: he's, he actually says, he's like, what scene? Like when people ask him, tell me about the scene that you're at, he's like, well, well there is no scene that exists that didn't come out of any scene. So this was very much, um, uh, this this film that has been made, Underground Inc., very much captures that spirit of all these people from all these cities um, a different uh, around the US and, and further out as well, mm-hmm. you know, touring, um, trading, you know, board and shelter and, um, you know, uh, clubs that were set up with uh, little labels. You had clubs, you had labels, you had houses for people to stay when they toured. it. This was all this, this growing network that was all uh, in the real world. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there's some sort of scenes that happen now, but they're not as reliant and as grounded as uh, this need to do things in the physical world as as they were back then.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, one thing, the only thing I would say that's, and I don't, it's not, it's not missing, it's just for me personally, the only thing I would say is missing is that it's not missing, it's there, but I just kept thinking of all the different clubs, you know, there's this whole, it wasn't officially a network, but there was this network of clubs from these little sort of satellites throughout America, where you knew if you wanted to see this kind of music, that, well, you've got to go here, you know, you've got to go to the 930 Club or the Black Washington, yeah. in DC, or you've got to go, You uh, used to live in Boston, you got to go to the Middle East, you've got to, you know, these sort of things. And I think that's, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, all these, uh, I was in North, lived in North Carolina, so the Cat's Cradle in Chapel Hill would have some of these, you know, bands coming through. And it's like, um, it was, it, it was very, it, you know, I think what I didn't appreciate at the time, what your film helps me realize is how, unique and special in some ways that that era was. We just I just thought we all thought that that's just the way it was, you know. Yeah,
0: that's the truth.
1: And yeah. um and you know, and like you said, how did you I mean, I was oblivious to it. But then uh, I was working one one summer and a guy gave me a tape. He says, "You might want to listen to some of this music." And I listened to it and it's like some of these some of the bands that feature in your uh in your doc are in there. And I'm like I was like you know, you you talk about the, you know, there's this, uh, there's this idea that that generation was an angry, angry young men and, and women. Uh, what was angry was what made me angry is why hadn't I heard any of this music before?
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm happy that you're saying that because that was the whole reason I I wanted people to know that these other bands existed. But I mean, uh, look, I mean, there were a lot of bands back then, and there are a lot of bands now, and I, I think it's. Um, it's 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 an interesting story about how um, you know underneath all of this um, you know all of this indie stuff it all came down to at the end of the day how many albums that you were going to sell that whole yeah. capitalist aspect that that maybe led to um you know, I think, I think if you were in the city, you would hear about these bands. Like, what, what city did you grow up in in the US?
1: Well, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. So uh, that didn't really have as much, oh, well, you see, I was a little bit, for various reasons, oblivious to any scene that might have had. What I did know about was the Sex Pistols came and they caused a riot in San Antonio. It's documented in, in a film. Uh, and it makes everyone from San Antonio very proud. That this, yeah. <laughs> that this thing happened, but you know there are the cool. You know, you know, you're talking about the different groups. I yeah, look, there be- are
0: there are people who kept their ear to the ground. But I mean, exactly. I think if you were going to shows back in the day. Let's say you grew up in Dallas, you would know about Course of Empire, right? Or you would know about the Toadies or or, or whatever well, the band. band yeah. in Dallas, I mean, the Toadies became huge, so that's a bad yeah. example. But um, um, you, you know, you would. I think it was you, you mentioned clubs before. And I think it was a case of, you know, if you were in that local scene, if you were a part of it, that's the only way you could find out about these bands. But if you were just uh, someone who might just tune in on the radio, then you Mm. might not hear about them. So you mentioned how I left out a lot of stuff about clubs, which really just came down to, um, it's not all that interesting to have a whole list of names of clubs rattled off because you have to, Uh, work with things in the edit that complement the the narrative of the feeling of the narrative moving forward but then also on top of the clubs you also had um the radio so another thing was the radio. so i I guess most people find out about music on the radio at least they did back then right yeah or mtv so there's a lot of politics which uh went into Uh, what landed up on the radio and what landed up on MTV and I could only touch on some of this stuff because I had so much material and at the end of the day only so much of it is going to make it into an animated film but I, uh, it's a very interesting can that you open when you talk about why band gets big and Mm -hmm. why it
1: doesn't. Yeah and I think And no need to give a list of clubs. I mean, I think what you've done is you've shown what those clubs were like uh, by, through all this, the, the, the live footage that you've got. You have, it must have taken forever to track all this stuff down. I mean, um, and I think, you know, um, I, I saw Fishbone in concert, and you've got a Fishbone um, footage in there. And I think it does a pretty good job of showing you what seeing a, going to a Fishbone concert would have been like. I mean, in, in talking to all these, uh, all these bands and musicians, I mean, what are the lessons they've learned?
0: Oh, I definitely think there are lessons to be learned. I would say that the probably the biggest one is what uh Steve Albini touches on about the bands who who have managed to continue making music are the people who have decided to, you know, take care of the business side themselves. They're not the people who have hooked onto a bobsled and let a big record company take care of them. They're the people who have decided to learn how, how the business is run and, and do all those things so they're not reliant on people who might potentially rip them off. And, I mean, we're seeing that now with uh, so many of the bands who didn't do well back then are doing better now. I mean, a band like Failure is, is more yeah. successful now than they were back then by quite a large margin. So uh, there was a lot to be learned about, you know, rather than living the rock rockstar lifestyle, it might be helpful to learn more about what caused all of this and avoid it by just doing it yourself. So I think that that was probably the big lesson to be learned.
1: Yeah, I think that was a very good, because um, this, you know, like any any good doctor it's, it's going to be more than just about the the immediate subject. And I think you do learn a lot about the music industry. And I thought it was very interesting, the point, I forget which band it is, and it wasn't, it wasn't failure. But uh, uh, the guy said, look, for Atlantic, we sold, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of albums and we didn't make any money off of that at all and you know but we uh, we've gone back to being independent labels or however they're doing it and selling a lot fewer records but certainly from a financial standpoint they're at least seeing some of the money. Um
0: yeah, 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 that was clutch. That yeah, was it was clutch. clutch, yeah. who are really doing much better than they used to back when they were when they were bounced around from one major to the next cuz yeah. so they were on like three or four majors. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was uh, I, I love the different perspective that Neil, Neil Fallon gave to that yeah. like you know, some bands thought it was like, you know, some sort of thing to be afraid of if they got dropped. And he was like saying, like, when we got dropped, we thought we took these jokers for a ride. They got exactly. a exactly. bunch of money to go out and tour with these bands and these yeah. bands and okay. sucked in, you signed us up and look look what we got to do with our money. So it's um it it's very um very uh
1: eye opening. Yeah. And uh, I think you've touched on it already. you've uh, talked about how influential these bands uh, are. Um, hmm. but uh, what do you think is alternative rock's legacy?
0: I would say that that music it definitely changed the way that people accept a certain style of music. From what I understand before that happened, uh, you know, if you you know, you either liked pop or you either liked punk or you liked country and, and, yeah. and who are you if, you know, you liked something else. And I think that now there, there are all these weird subgenres that have come out that have been a result of that. I mean, I yeah. found out the other day that there's something called, um, uh, I can't remember. It's like a mixture between like shoe gaze and black metal. It's called like black gaze or something like that. <laughs> it, 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 there's all these really weird, weird combinations, yeah. which, Some of them I don't get, but (laughs) uh, some of them are really good. Um, But there's all kinds of like bizarre combinations of music. And it really broke open uh, any limitations of what is possible in, you know, uh, any kind of music, I suppose. And I guess that's what their legacy was.
1: Yeah. And I think, and probably also what it comes out too in the film is that, um, you know, these guys had influences that were, you know, not just their own, whatever however you want to call their genre. They, you know, they would have been influenced by uh, um, what was happening, certainly with like, well, you mentioned it with uh, hip hop and sampling and things like that, that was going on mm. at the time. So um, no, I think, I think that is a very good way of, of putting it, uh, that you could, um, you don't have to fit into some sort of um, category. You can mix all kinds of influences together. You can have... Yeah, I mean, you know, it, like. It, it, I
0: mean, who would think that something like hip hop could influence something like industrial? They're so, yeah. so like polar opposite. I mean, I was listening to um, this Cop Shoot Cop album the other day called White Noise. And I mean, Cop Shoot Cop, they were quite noisy before they got to the point that you saw them in this film. Yeah. But there were this very uh, dirgy kind of. Impenetrable sounding band, but you listen to that album White Noise, and you can hear that production aesthetic of like the Bomb Squad from Public Enemy in there. You know, it's all, all bleeding into each other. You know, it was it was very very inspiring.
1: Yeah, and I will say that uh, that that tape that turned me on to this music was uh, it had that mixture. It, It had Public Enemy on there mixed in with you know. Bands like like this so you know it's 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 I think what people were picking up on anyway, you know that uh good music's good music, so um yeah um so what's what's next for you uh
0: maybe buying a hammock and just relaxing <laughs> <laughs> um i I look i mean you'll always have things that you want to make, and it's mm. just a matter of uh will you get a chance to do them I, I would like to go back to what I originally started originally set out to want to make like um, fiction films. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to make a uh, documentary after documentary. This was just something that I really loved and something that I wanted to do. Um, but I mean, I, I would like to try to veer back towards that one way or another and I guess I'll see how that happens. And, um, uh, but I, I think the other thing that I just wanted to say was that, um, uh, for anyone listening to this um, podcast, you know, if they've seen the movie, go out and find these bands that we've been talking about. Actually go out and, and look for this music, because it will change your life in very unexpected ways.
1: Yeah, I well, I would second that, certainly. I mean, it's got me uh, going back out to the, uh, all my old CDs are in the garden shed, so I need to go back and uh, a few of these, <laughs> uh, dig them out again. and. Uh, right. Right. Regardless of what my wife might think, and then um, and then I yeah I, I agree. And then some of the ones that I hadn't hadn't been that familiar with, I was I was kind of blown away. I was like, why hadn't I heard of them? And I do do want to go uh, go search them out and and listen to them because um, it was. Uh, I mean, okay, I'm of my era, but uh, to me, some this, a lot of the music in there just seems so timeless.
0: Oh, like which ones were the ones that you said why have I not heard of these bands?
1: Um, I didn't know "Cop Shoot Cop" that really. Um, so, and they play largely. They they have a large. I mean, you you do, you could have focused on one or two bands, but you didn't. I mean, you've got, um, um, as you say, we cover we cover a lot of ground. It is, I think, the definitive doc of 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 the scene. Uh, but uh, um, you know, I think that would have been one. Um, what would have been another one, I was a little surprised i had wasn't aware of the one from um what's the one from dallas um a course of
0: empire
1: yeah I was a little surprised Man, are,
0: it- okay so course of empire they made um, they made three albums and the third album uh telepathic last words yeah. it is ground shaking as um you know, Nine Inch Nails' Downward Spiral or of mm-hmm. The Mind is a terrible thing to taste. It is as mm-hmm. epic and as like towering as any of those really dark masterpiece, well-known mm. uh, recordings that came out of that time. So um, I-, I was really happy to have them involved. So I just wanted to plug that album because uh, I-, I really don't think enough people um, know about it.
1: Well, you've heard it here, and I will now go. Go track it down, and, and I don't know where I'm going to be able to find it. I don't think it's on Spotify, but
0: uh... oh, no, no, no. I think you. No, oh, no, no. I think that's the second album. I think um, Initiation mm. is now available on Spotify. That was second course of album, uh, course of Empire album, yeah. but that's worth a listen to. All all that stuff is. But um, yeah, find whatever you can of that stuff. It's, it's it's very good.
1: Okay. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the recommendation. Uh Sean, I think we're coming to the end of our time together. So um I just wanted to thank you for coming onto the podcast. It's been uh been a joy having you. And I hope hope you uh hope wish you much success with the release on the on the 23rd. And um if you do make another doc, uh, I'm sure it'll be a good one and we'd love to have you back on.
0: Thank you very much, Matthew.
1: And uh well, I just wanted to thank you, thank Sean Katz again and um I remind you, the film is Underground Inc. The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock. Available in the US and Canada on DVD and all major cable and VOD platforms, including iTunes, Amazon, Fandango Now, Voodoo, and Google Play. I'll have to take a breath here. Um, check local cable listings for availability. Uh, actually, do you know outside of the US and Canada, where, if, if this is going to be available wider? Because we have our is worldwide, actually.
0: I'm sure it will be. Uh, it might not be available this month worldwide, but it will, I believe it should eventually roll out to all other territories in the next few weeks or few months and things like that.
1: Okay, so this will be releasing in time for the release uh, on the 23rd. But uh, for those listening to this podcast, if you're not in the in North America, uh, do, do a search for it. I'm sure it will be uh, coming up uh, soon. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our engineer, Freddie Besbrode and the rest of the team at This Is Distorted Studios in Leeds, England. Nevina Paunovic, podcast manager, ensures we continue getting such great guests like Sean on the program. And uh, finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you. So please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts this is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamo